The From Day One podcast is brought to you by The Bridge. Visit us at thebridgebk.com. Hi, I'm Nick Bailey, and this is the From Day One podcast. Our guest today is Roberto Gill, the founder and chief designer at Casa Kids. Casa Kids is a Brooklyn-based furniture company founded in 1992 and based in Red Hook. The company focuses on children's furniture and are well-known for their high-end installations that transform a room, maximizing the space and efficiently using all three dimensions. Gill's designs are typically minimalist and modern, often featuring birch plywood and a pop of color. All the furniture is built in Brooklyn by a small team of woodworkers, the same people who install the pieces into local customers' homes. Early collections were featured in the Children's Museum of Arts in Soho, as well as the MoMA, Guggenheim, and Whitney Museum shops. Gill was born in Buenos Aires, has a master's in architecture from Harvard University, and worked as an architect in New York before starting Casa Kids. Father of two, Gil is known to be passionate about calling Brooklyn home. Roberto, it's a pleasure. Thanks for coming in. Hi, Nick. Thank you for having me here. So can we go back to the beginning a little bit of your journey with furniture? I know that you started the business in 1992. It was in Tribeca. Um, Tell us a little bit about what was going on at those times when that happened. Well, I actually started in uh, in my apartment in Midtown on 57th Street and 7th Avenue just a few months before I moved the shop to Tribeca. And back then there was a recession, so I got uh, I lost my job in an architecture firm in the city and there was no work. There was no work at all. All the architects were shrinking their offices, firing people. So I was doing furniture for myself in my own apartment. And and I realized that I liked it, and it was fun. And uh, meanwhile, I was still looking for jobs and interviewing. But then it o- occurred to me that I could do small things because of, of a shortage of space to produce them. So I started doing little chairs for kids. And I went downtown to a store in Soho called Zona that doesn't exist anymore, but it was very pretty on Green Street and show them some prototypes. They love them, and, and they ordered. They said, okay, we want some. So I had to figure out how to make them. I started making them actually in my apartment, a fourth-floor uh, walk-up, bringing the plywood up the stairs, and uh, I installed a table saw in the bedroom, <laughs> and I was uh, at night uh, cutting pieces because the, the rest of the occupants of that small building were offices. Interesting. So at night they were closed and I could make noise and cut. So I did some tables and chairs and then another order, more tables, chairs. This uh, store put my stuff in the window and I had a little write-up in the New York Times in the home section. So next thing I realized I I had a business. So I had to look for more space and a helper and that's when I moved to Tribeca. How did you end up starting with children's furniture? What was the reason for that? Was it just because it was smaller? Part of it, then I think my style uh, fitted well because I like things that are very simple. They're kind of uh, almost naive in, in, in design or in style. And, uh, and, and in, I build things in ways that a kid can understand how it's uh, built. And uh, I had other people tell me that, oh, this looks like uh, it could work for kids, your style. And probably an influence was uh, growing up, my father for a bunch of years, he was uh, doing cartoons as, um, he was actually doing it in advertising. He was doing TV commercials, 
But uh, so I always would see him sketch and draw. And he, when he would draw a house or a car or a tree, he would draw them like a, almost like a kid would uh, draw them. So that that the aesthetics, the children friendly aesthetics were familiar to me. Did you study art when you were growing up in Buenos Aires? Did you study art? Did you go to art school at all? How did you end up um, starting on the path towards architecture? No, I did not go to art school. I, I mean, I would always win the art prize in my school <laughs> because it was a school more uh, geared to science, and most people from there went into engineering or economics. And but you know, I always liked drawing and painting and making things, building the you know the Legos and all of that. My favorite toy when I was a kid was called the Meccano. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are other versions of that. There are those little metal pieces with screws. That's like the British version of what they call uh, erector sets. In the United yeah, States, the right? erector sets. Yeah. Exactly. The erector sets. So this fondness for the connections, the, the bolts and nuts and the screws connecting pieces uh, that I, I do in my furniture, you know, has a direct line to those uh, erector sets that I, I was using as a kid. So, and then I discovered architecture when I was like, 13, 14 years old, I fell in love with Gothic architecture. I don't know why. I mean, I know why. It was from a... Like big, severe churches and and things like that. Interesting. Yeah, I would visit all these cathedrals. In Argentina, of course, they were neo-Gothic cathedrals. They were not Gothic. But uh, I studied all the French ones. um, And I was fascinated by uh, how these people in, you know... uh, Almost the Middle Ages, in the 12th century, they were building these buildings with stone... It's kind of a similar concept, right? You can actually sort of see the engineering on the outside, right? With all the sort of pieces and the beams and the flying buttresses. Same kind of concept, right? It's true. It's true. I I was always very interested in the engineering part and in the building part of uh, design. I I was never too fond about uh, just, you know, the the shapes or the forms in themselves. Never was interested in ornament. Uh, So, of course, I, I, I was training architecture in a modernist uh, tradition, let's say. Um, but, but uh, it, it, you know, I love bridges. I love things that are just, uh, you know, engineering uh, objects. So, so you're, you know, you're 13, you're, you're a teenager, you're, you're starting to think about architecture. What did you actually do about it? What did you do next? Actually, I, I did that class that uh, each kid has to, had to present a subject and by the time my presentation came, I knew a lot about Gothic ar- architecture. And, and after that, I kept reading about Gothic architecture for some time. And then when I was uh, 15, 16, I, I knew that I was going to go to university to study architecture. In Argentina, the system is more like the European system that you go to school and you go straight into a career. You don't do like you know college and then graduate school. So I did, archi- I, you know, I went into architecture. And where, and where did you go to school? In Buenos Aires. In Buenos Aires. Yeah, the University of Buenos Aires. Uh, it was a six-year program. And then there were, there were other courses and classes that you could do outside of uh, university, some private courses that were very good. Did you do any architecture back home uh, before you ended up in the United States? I did. And how did, that go? How did, you, end up, how did you end up making that transition? Well, uh, I started working when I was already in like second, third year of uh, university. I started working to pay for my psychoanalysis, basically. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Here in Buenos Aires, everybody goes to the shrink. And um, so I worked in different offices. 
And but but by the time I finished university in Buenos Aires, uh, or just about that time, I was already thinking that I wanted to leave, and I wanted to go to a to a nice school. I, I wanted to have a good uh, academic experience. I always loved the uh, reading and learning and learning from people from good architects. So as soon as I could, uh, I did a trip all over the Europe and the U.S. checking for schools. And then I realized the best schools were here. And I applied to Harvard Columbia and I ended up going to Harvard, which was for me the, the best school at that time. That's pretty well regarded, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about that. So you ended up, you, know, you, you came here, you, you worked on a, a graduate degree. Um, and then you went back into working as an architect, right, after school? Exactly, yeah, that was always my plan. Uh, be before I finished my uh, graduate degree, uh, I was already sending letters and uh, setting up interviews to move to New York and work in an office, and I did. I moved here and I worked with, uh, it was called Fox and Fowl back then, later they split, it's Fox, it has his firm and Fowl, Bob, uh, Bruce Fowl has his own. And, uh, but as I said before, the, the recession was hitting by 1990 and there was a firm that they were like a hundred architects and suddenly in a month they reduced to like 40. I mean, it was like, it was. People sometimes don't realize, I think people think of architecture as like a, you know, kind of like a, a longstanding professional field, but of course it, it depends on the real estate industry, right? For all, all of the, all of the actual money. Um, and so it's actually very cyclical, right? It, like th this happens a lot, that the sort of boom and bust cycle, right? It does, it does. Yeah, I mean, in, in the city you see it a lot, but uh, this happened nationwide and, and in Europe was the same thing because uh, some of my colleagues were also looking to move to Europe and, and also there wasn't much work back then. So um, yeah, ar architects uh, feel it pretty quick when uh, recessions are hitting and the, and the the you know bankers banks stop financing construction because they're not selling and uh, i remember how this uh, this i was working on a huge project in this office and that got unplugged in like a couple of weeks mm -hmm. there was a huge building like 50 stories and their main tenant pulled out they had i think it was a bank uh the anchor tenant pulled out and in, in a few weeks, they started firing people. Then they lost another big project. And, you know, the, the firm got reduced to 20% of the staff or something like that. I don't know. Gotcha. Had you been dabbling in sort of design projects outside of architecture at all? Sort of, you know, I know that when you, when you ended up at home looking for work, you started dueling furniture. Was that, was that like the first time you had done that? Um, or was that already a hobby of yours? I had done very little when I was at Harvard. There was a wood shop there that uh, uh, to to create the models, you know, the scaled models for the buildings. So I I learned how to use the basic tools, the table saw and band saw, etc. And uh, and and also when I was living there in Cambridge, uh, I made a coffee table <laughs> and something just for my, you know, uh, on a, on on a, on a break. I forgot when I did it. So I had done a couple of things there. That was all. And then in, for my apartment, I did some bookshelves and these little chairs, these little stools that later became the kids' uh, chairs. But that was it. I mean, I haven't done much other things. When you started the, when you, so when you started the company, you're, you're getting a little bit of attention. The New York Times has caught on. You start to think it could be a business. Um, 
did you think a lot about the business model? Did you sort of do planning? Did you raise money? Did you did you write it out on paper, or did you just kind of start building stuff and selling it? Like, what were some of the first steps like when you realized you had a business on your hands? Yeah, well, I had no clue. I had no idea what I was doing, and uh, I didn't even know I had a business for a while. I mean, I I was still looking for jobs as an architect, but meanwhile, I would be getting some orders, and I and I kept making the furniture just by myself, but. Um, yeah, then someone, I forgot who, who it was, uh, told me that I should do a show. So then I signed up for a trade show in the in the Javits Center, one of those uh, gift shows. And um, from one customer, I, I went to having, let's say, 20 customers. Mm-hmm. And I was selling in some museum stores. And, uh, I mean, I sold in the Guggenheim Museum. Later on, I sold some designs to the MoMA design store. And um, and just small gift stores or kids' uh, juvenile product stores all around the country. And so then I did another show, and and you know, and the the business started growing. Were you still making? Um, were you still doing carpentry, like in Manhattan at that point? Yeah, yeah. When I moved the shop to Tribeca, I I hired one guy first, so it was the two of us making things, then I hired another one, and then I would have someone to help me go install. So slowly I, I, I increased the staff, and, and then later we started doing larger projects. Besides the, the kids' furniture, I was doing, for a while I did some restaurants, I did some uh, renovations of, of apartments, and I did you know the kitchen cabinets, and the library, and radiator enclosures, and Anything that you could make in wood, we would do it. But but now it's only the kids' furniture that we do. So when you know, at some point you realize that you're outgrowing um, Manhattan, but you, you you did decide to stay in New York City. You, you ended up in Brooklyn, and you decided to manufacture in Brooklyn. Obviously, this was you know this is about about twenty years ago, roughly, right? Um, so clearly, you know the, the the real estate market in Brooklyn wasn't quite as extreme as it is today. But but even then. You know, building and making things in New York wasn't wasn't really something that a lot of people thought was feasible. You know, or just practically speaking, what what made you think differently? What made you decide that that was something you, that you could do? Yeah, it's true. It's it's always been a challenge to manufacture here. Um, well, for first of all, I wanted to live here, so I didn't want to be commuting and have a my workspace further away. But it it was mostly because of the 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 clients that I had here, the the, the customers, the, the the people that that I would be working for, uh, that was a main motivation because there's a lot of very interesting people, people that have uh, uh, good taste for the furniture, in my opinion. They have some money to spend, and um, so you know, I don't know if I would find the same customers or so many so interesting people in other cities. And, but no, but ma- mainly is that I, I wanted to live here. And then when I moved to Brooklyn 20 something years ago, I, I fell in love with the, with the area. I don't know if you knew that my, my previous shop was like three blocks from here in Dumbo. In Vinegar Hill, right? Or in Dumbo? In, yeah, in Bridge Street, Br- right. Bridge and Front. And I had my shop there. Uh, I moved to Vinegar Hill to live near the, the shop. And I had my shop in Dumbo for like five years. And then they sold the building. They converted to residential, and that's when I moved to Red Hook. Gotcha. 
let's talk a little bit about the, the actual designs themselves. You know, one of the things I thought was really interesting when discovering, you know, Casa Kids was you, you guys build furniture. It's totally accurate to say that you're a furniture company, but, you know, it's not, it's not sort of what you'd expect necessarily when you hear that word. You know, in a lot of cases, what you're doing is, is, is thinking in terms of a whole room, like transforming a room, b- making really efficient use of the space, thinking in, you know, in a couple dimensions like loft beds with areas underneath them, um, things that have multiple purposes. It's really more of like a, a sort of an all-encompassing design approach to a kid's room. It, it, was that something that you started out with or did you sort of evolve into that model for building furniture? Yeah, good question. I did evolve into that because I started doing individual pieces like chairs and tables and rocking chairs and then a desk. So people would just buy uh, a few pieces. But uh, then I started getting orders for or customers interested in the, the beds and more than the beds and the whole room. And that's where my architect side comes as if I was, you know, an architect for kids, not just the furniture designer, because we we were pretty good at creating spaces, space, especially when they're challenging spaces, when they're difficult because of the size or the shape or the requirements. Sometimes, you know, there are two or three kids sharing a space, so you have to figure out how to give them some privacy, how to get all the furniture in place. Of course, we love doing loft beds so we can use the space underneath. Um, but yeah, definitely my my training as an architect uh, helps me a lot on that because I, I understand space. I know the circulation, uh, you know, the ventilation of the room, the light and uh, proportions. So it's not just the objects, the furniture in itself, but the space in between the furniture and how you organize all of that. So tell us a little bit about how the company grew from that that spot forward. Like you know, you're starting to you're starting to build these things. You're in you're in Brooklyn. Obviously, you're expanding. You're getting a lot more customers. Like like how are you doing it? How are you running the business and, and selling yourself? Well, something sort of uh, unexpected happened uh, about ten years ago, which is uh, we had a website casakids.com, and we did a good job in in terms of search engine optimization. And I did a little crash course on SEO, and I learned about a bunch of tricks. And so suddenly people started finding me through Google. Um, and again, this this was pretty much around uh, right after the recession of 2008, 2009. So, and. Um, we just started getting random emails from people that visited the website. They they loved what they saw and they were asking if we could do this or we could do that. And that's when my business uh, completely changed because I didn't need to rely on architects to get or interior designers to get jobs. I didn't need to do so many shows or advertisement. So it was mainly through the, um, or sell to retailers, which I did for a bit. And I'm going to be doing it again, or I'm starting to do again. But uh, for all these last uh, 10 years, the growth has been organic, mostly through Google searches and social media. What kind of people are, are interested in the furniture? What kind of people? What kind of customers do you get directly like that? They're usually people that they're uh, looking for a bit more than just uh, a bed or a bunk bed. Sometimes. Uh, or, or, or people that they, they care a bit more about the quality and the design. So, of course, what we do is 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 a, is a, a bit expensive, you know. It's, it's not, um, it's made here in New York, so. 
and it's very good quality. Uh, what, what we do is, is, is the same quality that I would do for, let's say, adult furniture. A lot of the kids' furniture is not very well built because the concept is that, okay, it's just for a few years. But what we offer our, our products, they are going to outlive the, the, the kids' um, needs uh, in the sense that uh, uh, a kid may be in a bunk bed for just you know, a few years, eight years, five years, 10 years, but then our, our beds can uh, have a very good resale value. So people sell them. We help them also resell their beds. So that's something that uh, a lot of consumers like, getting a good quality product that then you can uh, pass along or, 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 or resell. And not you know nobody throws my furniture. That's something that I'm very proud of. I never heard people like trashing the furniture. They would always find someone, or if they cannot sell it, sometimes they say, "Do you want to take it back?" And, you know, I I'm moving back to France, whatever, and we need to get rid of the furniture right away, but it's still perfect. And yeah, in terms of in terms of the business growing as well, talk a little bit about you know you started out as a designer. And, and, and primarily were someone who was designing things. And of course, you were actually like a guy working a table saw for a minute there um, and, and had a hands-on approach. But you know, eventually, you've had to take over and sort of do everything. You just talked about marketing a little bit. Um, you know, of course, you're still the head of design for the company. Um, you also have to be the head of HR and, 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 and the chief you know, morale builder and, and also deal with the real estate leases. Um, how did you grow into that role? How was that different than you expected it to be when you started you know, a small company? Yes, I have to be wearing uh, many more hats than what I ever expected. And in the past, I tried having partnerships, like a business partner, but I didn't have good luck. It didn't work out, so I just kept going on my own. And I also didn't think I was going to be manufacturing for that long because initially I didn't even like it. I just wanted to design and have things made somewhere else. But it wasn't feasible. The, the quantities were not large enough. And and then I discovered that I liked the manufacturing. The ones I learned more about it, and I had some nice machines and good people to build things. Uh, not only I I started enjoying the manufacturing, but also it allowed me to create many many more things than than if you're just a designer and you have to finalize your design in paper or in the computer, and then commit to you know a big quantity of products. And that's much uh, more risky, challenging. And then you don't design so many things. Um, I have like hundreds of designs because sometimes we just did one. Sometimes we do many of the same and we keep doing it. And then the designs keep uh, keep evolving, keep changing. So manufacturing has helped me be a, a better designer. The other things... Yeah, I had to learn about marketing. I had to learn about uh, PR. I had to learn about a bunch of things. And um, over the years, I had uh, consultants or in-house people doing some of those duties. But um, I look forward to keep growing the company and have to do less things and just focus more on design and developing products. Since you guys have come to Brooklyn also, You've been joined really by a lot, a lot of manufacturing-based companies. It's really kind of a thing now, um, in a way that it wasn't when you guys started in Dumbo. Um, were you surprised to see that? Have you noticed that, that the manufacturing, the, the Brooklyn maker community, sort of growing up around you guys? Yes and no. I'm, I'm very happy. I, I, I love that there's more manufacturing, 
But I, I sort of saw, saw it coming. I thought it, it, it made sense that uh, we, uh, that there were enough people that were interested in, in something, le something made locally. And I'm talking now about consumers, that uh, uh, it's become a trend to buy things that are more unique, that, that you find them online. Uh, talk about Etsy, for example, all the people that can have created small businesses out of that platform. And, uh, and then everything was becoming very generic. It's like furniture and design and objects uh, were becoming like everybody, everything was the same because it was all only available through larger stores. So everything was like kind of mass produced. So um, I, I sort of saw it coming as, as I was doing it. And I was sensing the interest that consumers had for something custom made, something made to order, made locally, that you know, uh, um, that was produced with uh, good practices. And um, so I, I did s see it coming, and and I was pleasantly surprised that it was really uh, growing. What are some of, What are some of the things you think that makes Brooklyn? you know, uniquely suited for these kind of businesses? First, I think that Brooklyn happened because Manhattan got too crazy, too expensive. And as you said before, 20 years ago, you know, there were there was almost no one in, in Brooklyn. And some of the small shops were in the city, were in Manhattan, fashion designers, furniture designers. And so as, as the city grew and the real estate got more expensive, companies started moving here. But Brooklyn had already a, 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 a big manufacturing um, industry, but at a larger scale. Some of those big factories were moving out or, or shutting down, and then spaces were divided and smaller shops were coming in. But um, when I first moved to here to Dumbo, I actually... Uh, moved into a large shop that was already set up and I had a share there. Mm -hmm. So it was a company that in the past was doing larger projects and they didn't do so well or they moved out and then they divided the space and rented out to to a bunch of different people. So, but yeah, I think it's all the energy, all the creativity that there is in New York. Uh, it, it's happening in Brooklyn. And what about Red Hook? Red Hook seems, even even in the context of Brooklyn, Red Hook seems to have its own sort of unique small town culture. I mean, sometimes it feels like you're in a New England fishing village, <laughs> you know, in different different parts of the of the neighborhood. What do you think of Red Hook? Yeah, totally. Oh, I love uh, Red Hook. I, I love being on the waterfront. And the fact that it's a bit isolated because the subway doesn't reach there, it's not so close. Uh, that makes it um, interesting in its own way because people stick around. There are a lot of locals. You go to the restaurants, to the bars, and, and, and you run into the same people. People in the street, you know, you see them a few times and then you say hello. So, and yeah, there are, uh, I mean, Red Hook had, has a, a bunch of in, industrial buildings that they were, you know, related to the port activity in the old days. And, and now there are a lot of shops in there. Woodworkers, uh, People that make things in glass and metal, uh, upholstery, or, you know, all different industries. So, um, and it's, uh, I mean, it's got, Red Hook is also getting expensive. Some offices are moving now in. And there's some very high-end residential coming in, too. You know, there's, that, there's that building on Imlay Street, uh, the old dock building. Yes. Um, I don't know the details, but I know that somewhere 
next to the Ikea parking lot. There's some kind of giant glass and steel project underway. Um, are you worried about it? Are you worried the neighborhood's going to turn into Dumbo part two? Two. Oh, yeah, of course. Totally. I mean, that's going to happen. My business is tra- transforming a bit. So besides the, um, the manufacturing, uh, we're starting to produce some furniture overseas that I'm going to be warehousing somewhere else. But my showroom activity is increasing in Red Hook because let's say 20 years ago it was hard to get any customers to come over to Red Hook. Now they love it because they they know the neighborhood. They've been in Ikea or in Fairway or Pioneer Works. And Uber has transformed Red Hook in a lot of ways too, some people say, right? Totally, yeah. Yeah, so you can actually get people to come by for a quick appointment or something like that. Exactly. It's much easier to get there, to get out of there. Uh, there's a bit of water transportation also which uh, supposed to increase. So, yeah, I mean, the bicycles in the summer, at least for young people that work there, uh, it's uh, another way of um, getting there. Uh, so, yeah, now Red Hook is in the map. I guess with Sandy, believe it or not, um, Sandy, despite the, the you know the tragedy of the, all the flooding, put Red Hook in the map for a lot of people. Are people aware that it existed in some ways, you think? Or yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the picture of Fairway all flooded was all over the, the news when this happened. Mm-hmm. Some people say that, that you know, when the gentrification wave sort of marches across Brooklyn, that, that ironically, the neighborhoods that, um, that, go, that go first are the ones that are the most sort of perfect already. You know, the ones with the beautiful brownstone streets you've seen in Crown Heights and Bed-Stuy and so on. Obviously, Cobble Hill and Carroll Gardens were you know, 20 years before that. Um, and that it sort of skips over the industrial neighborhoods, but that when the industrial neighborhoods go, they, they go completely because there's so much, you know, nobody cares about the old bus depot and then you end up with, you end up with Dumbo or, uh, you know, Long Island city, for example, you know, places where you can just build giant glass and steel things. Williamsburg's waterfront is like that too. Um, do you think that's happening right now in Red Hook? Do you see that? No, I don't see that uh, yet. I think, uh, Red Hook maybe has the advantage that, it has uh, a local population that cares, and you know those people are um, pretty active, and uh, they they fight things, and the community boards. So I think there and there's also um, uh, a strong lobby of the industry that are, they are protecting jobs, they are protecting. Let's say there's a big lots with parking for school buses. Mm-hmm. You know those school buses they have to be somewhere. They cannot be very far from the city. They are serving kids in the city. So there's a lot of political pressure there to to keep things, um, to prevent them from growing too much and have developers take over and you know just build crazy things. So it's it's gonna be slower and probably more balanced in the sense that from uh, from industry or small manu- manufacturing probably some. Uh, offices or studios uh, could move in or showrooms. Uh, I think IKEA is a big presence there, and I think more retailers are, are going to be interested in being uh, near IKEA down the road. And um, so I, I don't think it's going to happen so so quick. Plus, the the transportation issue. Is, uh, is different than Dumbo. Dumbo was a perfect target because there, there, uh, there's two bridges, there's like two subway lines, is right across from the city, it's very close. Red Hook is close to the city, but not, it's not that easy to get there. Not connected, right? Yeah. You mentioned working on some stuff that was 
that was manufactured overseas and, and the business changing a little bit. Do you want to talk about what, what, what you guys have in, in store for the future? Oh, yes. The idea is, of course, to expand, to reach uh, more customers all over. And so um, one of the difficult, tricky things about furniture is uh, the shipping. So um, making stuff in a, in a larger factory, not only I can reduce cost, but I can also have it already packed in a cardboard box that I can send via UPS. Right now, our, all our shipping is uh, is what, what we call white glove. That is like a mover, like movers that come and they blanket wrap and they bring it to the customer and they assemble. But that's very costly. So whenever I have to ship to California, for example, from New York, is very very costly. So uh, I'm going to be producing in factories um, products that I already developed here, so that I've been making them uh, in my own shop. And but that I can make them less expensive somewhere else and bring them in in quantity. And uh, yeah, I mean that's going to be growing. I mean as much as I love m- making things here, it's getting more and more expensive every year uh, or every few years. I mean, if I think of it, like my rent probably tripled in fifteen years. My rents and um and my prices went up you know 20% or something mm-hmm. or 30%. So um, you have to be constantly becoming more more efficient in what you do uh getting better there's also more competition most most of my competition most of the kids furniture that you see is produced in big factories 90% overseas and so it's very hard to compete and I'm reaching a a relatively small, very small segment of the population that can spend um, a certain amount of money in what I do, but I could do some of some of the things that I do. They could be made in factories. They could be less expensive, and so more people could uh, could afford them. Of course, I I would grow my business, increase sales, and uh, so yeah, that's what I want to do. Excellent. Anything else exciting on the future for Casa Kids? No, more of the same. I mean, expansion. I'm looking to to expand to Europe. Uh, this first production that I that I started to bring is a, a bunk bed that I, it's made in Eastern Europe. So I'm looking to expand into Europe. We get tons of emails from people in different cities, from Barcelona, Paris, and London, and oh, can we buy your furniture? And I always tell them it's more expensive to ship it from New York than the cost of the furniture. So, and I'm also looking to expand uh, to South America, Argentina, Chile, uh, Uruguay. Um, and then I have um, a good contact in Australia who's very interested in selling my furniture there. We also get a lot, lot of emails from Australia. There's a blog that follows us, so they publish work. And, and yeah, that's it. So not much, just, uh, just global domination. <laughs> <laughs> well... I, you know, it's about time. I mean, it's, 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 it's not the first time that I start production, but the last time I did production overseas was when the recession hit in 2008, 2009. So I had to fold it and I almost go out of business back then. So um, this time I'm more organized and I know better what I'm doing and the designs have been tested and proven and they work. So now it's going to be the same thing but less expensive. So I figured, okay, I can't go wrong with that. I have to figure out the channels, where to distribute, with whom to work, etc. Excellent. Well, Roberto, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Nick. It was a pleasure. 
You've been listening to From Day One, how Brooklyn entrepreneurs got their start. This series is made possible by The Bridge, a news site dedicated to reporting on business in Brooklyn. With help from Complex Ventures, a Brooklyn-based digital agency working with more than profit companies and organizations. For more from The Bridge, to learn more about today's guest, or to listen to more episodes of From Day One, visit us at thebridgebk.com. That's T-H-E-B-R-I-D-G-E-B-K.com. From Day One is produced by Cora Feeder, Steve Kep, and myself, Nick Bailey. Audio editing and post-production by Steph Derwin. Our theme music was performed by Jody Rockwell and the Ambulance, and our founding sponsor was the Made in New York Media Center. Thanks for listening.